All right, well, we've been in this series for uh, a while. We're taking a look at, at what it would look like if we grow up, if we become more mature in our faith, and all of us can do that, and that's kind of what this letter um, uh, that we're looking at is, is doing. I took Cade, my boy, uh, here. I took him fishing on Friday, and uh, we went trout fishing. We went down to Montauk State Park and went with some other guys here at, at Trinity, and so Kate had never been, and so I took him, and we didn't have waders, and so my father-in-law said, I have some waders that, that Cade can wear, and so uh, he brings these waders, and, and Cade's about this tall, and the waders were about this tall, and, uh, and so it didn't work real well, and the boots were way too big, and so it was great to see Cade just kind of stumble around, and we'd been in the water maybe three or four minutes, and I specifically told Cade, I said, do not move. Just stand in the water and don't, don't move at all, and so literally two or three minutes, I look back, Cade's fallen over in the water, Water is rushing into his, uh, his waders, and he's all wet, and he's crying. And so two minutes into it, we're out of the water. I'm changing him into the only spare clothes that I brought for, uh, for Cade. And so I get him into those clothes, and we go fish some more. And, and Cade's never fished, really. And so if you don't know anything about fishing, uh, fishing could be very frustrating uh, for, for little kids and for dads of little kids. And, uh, and so Cade's uh, learning how to cast, and, and I'm kind of out wading in the, the stream, the river, and Cade's on the bank, and he's casting. And, Probably every two or three casts, uh, he's hung up. He's having trouble and he's hung up. And so I'm having to walk back over and get him unhung or he's wrapped around his pole or he thinks he's caught something. And so I'll look over and he's hung up on a tree in the, the river. And so finally, Kate, he's like, I caught something. I caught something. I'm like, yeah, right. And I look back and Kate's pole's just like moving like crazy. And I'm just like, I really didn't reel it in. So he's, he's reeling it in. And then all of a sudden the fish jumps up in the water. And it's this beautiful picture of this, this fish and it comes off. Comes off, and Cade loses his first ever fish that he could have possibly caught while we're, we're trout fishing. And he was crushed. And I, it was for me, and I remember as a kid, I felt always bad when I fished with my dad. Uh, but now I know it on the other side as a, as a dad trying to fish. It was more about helping him. It was more about helping him and him learning. And it was a struggle, and it was discouraging at times. And it's like, I want to fish, but I got to help him. And, and here's, here's what I was in the, in the moment. And it goes so well with what, what we're looking at. His following Jesus is a lot like that. Things don't go well at times. Things don't go well at times, and maybe you feel discouraged. Maybe you get disappointed. Maybe you're trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus, and at times, maybe you just even want to give up. Maybe you want to give up. This letter that Paul is writing, this guy who writes this letter, I get the sense that he's writing back to this kind of this early group of believers. They had been Christians for most of them for about 10 years. And you almost get the sense that Paul is saying, look, I know there's things that are going on. I know maybe you're disappointed, I know you're discouraged, but look, this is a learning process. He uses words like press on. He actually says that it's things that he's even learned. So he's encouraging these people who are listening to this letter to understand that these are things that they're going to learn, that they're going to learn. And so I, I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know if you feel uh, encouraged because you're a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you'll di feel discouraged. I don't know if maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus and you're here today. But no matter where you find yourself, I think all of us have an area in our life where we can learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. All of us, all of us has, have areas where we can, we can grow. And so this first group, I think it's really important, and we've, we've said this almost every week, but I think it's really important to understand who these people are that, that Paul is writing back to. That Paul's writing back to some real people and a real church and a real community. And so he... he 10 years before writing this letter, he, he reaches out to these people and he teaches them about the gospel, the good news, that everyone's broken, everyone's made mistakes, yet everyone is loved in the midst of those mistakes. But this is where it's important. It doesn't stop there. So that, that's not the gospel in itself. The gospel then says that God so loves us, even in our brokenness, 
that he sends Jesus to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us back to him, to restore us. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. And so Paul goes in and he's interacting with these people and he's teaching these people this. And so Lydia, who's a wealthy lady who, who dealt in, in purple cloth and she had everything she wanted, probably everything she needed. And she was a spiritual person. She's seeking and then she hears about this Jesus. She responds to the gospel and so does her family. And then you have a demon-possessed young girl, a little slave girl, who, who has no control over her life, who is delivered by Paul, who's delivered by God. And then you have the jailer, middle-class guy, just does his job. He's a Roman soldier, a Roman jailer, uh, probably abused people all the time. This miracle happens as Paul's in jail. This miracle happens. Paul's preaching the gospel basically in jail, the, the, the place breaks open and, and the jailer then says, tell me how to be saved. Tell me about this gospel. Tell me the good news. And this is what the church is made up of. And, and let me say this before we go, go really any farther. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, Jesus alone breaks through every barrier you could possibly think of. He breaks through every barrier you could possibly think of. If you, don't, if you haven't read the Bible, I would encourage you to read the Bible, read the account of Jesus. Look at who he interacts with. Look what Jesus does. Look what Jesus says. There is nothing that keeps him from interacting with people. There is no barrier. Culture, race, gender, age. There's absolutely nothing. Economics, it doesn't matter. The, the gospel breaks through every barrier you could possibly think of. And that's what makes it such good news. That every one of us in the room, no matter where you've been or where you're at right now, the good news breaks into your life as well. There's nothing that could get in the way of that. And so this is what happens. This is what is going on. And so Paul's writing back and he's encouraging them. He's challenging them. And now we're going to get to one of the, the points in this letter uh, that I often look at as kind of this coffee cup theology. That This week and next week, we're going to look at some scriptures that a lot of you have probably heard. Even if you're not a Christian, maybe the Bible is really a foreign idea to you. You probably have heard someone quote this. You've seen someone post it on Facebook. These are going to be fairly familiar scriptures, but they're going to be difficult. They're going to be difficult. And so let's jump right into it. We're going to look at uh, Philippians 4. And today we're going to look at Philippians 4, 2 through 9. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, a red Bible. You can have that. That's our gift to you. Please take it. Uh, a page number will help you find that, that spot. As I read this, I'll break it down. So I'll read a chunk and teach on it, and then I'll, I'll keep going through. So Philippians 4, 2 through 9. I plead with Yodia and plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, this is a very interesting part in this letter. Really, for all of Paul's letters, he makes these general statements, these general comments, and he's, he's teaching to a group of Christians, a group uh, that would confess to follow Jesus. But then all of a sudden, in this moment, he literally calls out two ladies. Now, can you imagine this? When Paul writes these letters, he knows they're going to be read aloud. So someone would have stood up like I am in a front uh, of a group of people and would have read this letter. And everyone's thinking, okay, that's so good. I'm going to try and do that. And then all of a sudden, you're sitting there. Can you imagine? You're sitting there and your name gets called. Can you imagine? Then all of a sudden, Yodi is sitting there and she's probably thinking, oh, this is good. This is helpful. And then all of a sudden, Paul says, hey, hey, you two, uh, things aren't going well between you two. 
You, you should probably figure things out and you should be agreeable. Can you imagine if I did that? <laughs> Can you imagine whatever I was talking about? If I knew someone was struggling with that or I knew that was an issue, I just, I just said your name. And I said, hey, you two, you guys, you got to figure that out. Uh, we'd probably lose people. Uh, our, we would slowly or quickly decline because that, that's difficult. It's difficult, right? No one wants to be called out and where they're struggling, but Paul does it here. Paul does it here and he calls out these two women and he says, look, you're having issues. We don't know what it is, but there's something going on where they cannot agree. They can't agree. And so Paul thinks it's important enough that he calls them out on it. He calls them out on what they are doing. Now, why would he? Why would Paul call out these two women? Everything we've heard him, him talk about, why would he call out these two women? I think it's a chance for these two ladies and the church in general to put into practice everything Paul's been talking about. Everything Paul's been talking about, everything we've been talking about. That the number one thing that we should be doing is pursuing Jesus. It's pursuing Jesus in his ways and what he said. If we are pursuing Jesus, we will work at being agreeable with one another. He, he then he could be saying, look, there, there's unity. The, the gospel breaks down all kinds of barriers, all kinds of disagreements, and so there's unity because of what Jesus has done. So if you believe that, then you'll work through the things that you're disagreeing about. Living a life that's a ma in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So what you say you believe and how you behave match up. So he's challenging these women to do that, to imitate Jesus, to stop complaining. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. They're probably complaining about something and they're, they're not finding an agreement about whatever it is. If these label, ladies are able to put into practice everything that they've heard, then it really doesn't matter what the conflict is. So I don't think we need to know the conflict. I just think we understand that there is something going on and Paul is saying that you got to figure it out. And it was important enough for him to talk about it. But again, why? Why, why does Paul really care if they're in agreement? Why does he care? I think it's important to understand the role of the church, the role of the church, you. So not a building, uh, but you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you, you're the church, the, the people make up the church. One of the, the most important things that the church is supposed to do is to point to who Jesus is. As a community of believers, one of the most important things that you do and that I do is to point to Jesus, is to point to Jesus. And so I believe that a divided group of believers a divided group of believers is a terrible representation of what God has done. A divided group of believers is a terrible representation of what God has done. So we understand that God's done so much in our life. He's forgiven us. He's changed us. However, if we're not concerned about our relationship, specifically within this community, if we're not concerned about our relationships within this community, then what we're representing to the world around us is not good. It's not good. And so I'm sure Paul's addressing them in a way that they should agree with, not, not in a way where they should just agree with anybody and everybody. There's going to be people that you disagree with, specifically maybe even outside of this place. But Paul is writing specifically to a group of people. And I think he would be writing to a group of people like us here today. And he would say, it's important that you are in agreement. But this takes both parties to do this. This is really important. This is not a leadership, I, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do and you just take it. It is all of us humbly surrendering ourselves to who God is. All of us doing that 
together. It takes both parties. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that, that we're not going to disagree at times. I'm not saying that we're a perfect group of people. I'm not saying just to put a smile on and, and take it. This is what I think it means. I think Paul is saying that you should always be concerned or you should always be pursuing reconciliation with people around you. That you should always be working towards that. So in your marriage, with your kids, with, with us in this room today, that when things come up and we're not in agreement, that we should always be working towards being in agreement. That we should always be striving towards reconciliation. That at the heart of who we are, that's what we should be doing. But this isn't natural. Is it? I mean, my natural instinct is to hold grudges. My, my humanness is for someone to hurt me and to think, oh, oh I hope they get what's coming to them. Yeah. My, my natural, natural instinct is to think I'm not going to forgive them. And if I don't forgive them, that, then they'll be punished. Th those are the natural instincts that we have. That It's not worth it to go through the hard work of agreeing and, and, and being reconciled to one another. Now, in the moment, you might feel this temporary satisfaction. You might feel satisfied in that moment. But long-term, you will not experience a joy, a deep, real joy. So, so what do we do? Just quickly, if you, if you take notes, I would encourage you, uh, we're going we're gonna to have to do a couple of things. Uh, one, we're going to address the problems instead of ignoring it. We're going to address the problems instead of ignoring it. And this, I think, is often a problem in the church is we feel like we can't bring up the problems that we have. We don't want to rock the boat, so we just kind of keep everything on, on the same level. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and so we don't deal with the problems. We don't deal with the issues that we have. And maybe it's even you and your marriage. It's you and your family. We're not willing to deal with some of those things that are going in our, on in our lives. And we think, if I don't address it, if I don't pay attention to it, it will just go away. I was just talking to someone uh, just a few minutes ago. I was searching out some ibuprofen. I had this horrible toothache. And uh, I told the, the guy I was talking to, I was like, yeah, I've been dealing with it for like a month. I'm like, a month? I'm like, yeah. And the thought was, it'll go away. But they don't just go away, right? Yeah. The problems that we have don't simply just go away. Actually, what happens is we just become calloused. We don't really love people like we should. Like some of us are afraid of conflict, and I understand that. But sometimes it's in conflict that, that true community, it's in conflict that, that true love takes place. It's in conflict that that happens. And so we have to address conflict with each other. You have to con uh, deal with the conflict that is going on around you. Because unresolved conflict, listen, it will hurt you spiritually, individually. It'll hurt you. But not only will it hurt you, but it's going to have an impact on the relationships around you. Unresolved conflict. And then, as I said earlier, it will have an effect on our witness in the community. And so we have to deal with some of those things that might come up. And I, I'm not saying there's things coming up. I'm just, we're just going through what Paul is saying. And this is where we're at. And so as the future moves on, and maybe you're dealing with something right now, that we have to deal with the conflict in our life. And then this is the other thing I'd like for you to recognize that Paul does. Paul doesn't beat him up about it. He actually just urges them or he pleads with them to be in agreement with one another. He, he does this gently. He does this full of patience. He's just pleading with them to, to do what they should do. So if we follow the example of Paul and we help people reconcile, we'll do that with love, not condemnation. We'll do that with love and not condemnation. And the goal, the goal 
when it comes to agreeing with one another is reconciliation and not punishment. If one person feels like the, they win and the other person is punished, then there, there's not true reconciliation that's taken place. So we have to be in agreement with that. And then the third thing is that we need to understand that what unites is greater than what divides. What unites is greater than what divides. So in the midst of tension and disagreements, those who follow Jesus, so specifically those of you who are here and say you follow Jesus, we must first put on the mindset of Jesus in disagreeing. So if we put the characteristics we see of Jesus in our lives when we disagree, then we'll do it in a way where we hope both people win, where both people win. And so here's what I want to encourage you. If there's conflict going on with someone in your family, a kid, uh, your parents, if it's a conflict here, maybe it's gone on for 10, 15 years and something happened years ago and there's been some barrier, there's been something that's gotten in the way, would you, would you deal with it? Would you, would you take care of it? And as Paul is saying, he's pleading with these people to take care of it. And he uses the church to help. So those uh, fellow yoke, when he talks about that, that the, the, the fellow um, uh, yoke fellows, loyal yoke fellows, he's saying those of you in the church who have taken on the teaching of Jesus, help other people be in agreement. Help other people reconcile. And then just quickly, I want to point out something. Uh, I think it's interesting that Paul writes to two women. It's interesting that Paul writes to two women, and here's why. Because in this culture, uh, women were almost seen as uh, less human. So uh, slaves, uh, the workers were seen as less human, and, and also often women. But there's this change that takes place with the gospel. Again, the gospel puts everyone on the same playing field. And so I love it that Paul writes back to these women because it's my understanding and my reading and, and other theologians back this, that these two women were very influential people in this church. They weren't just the people that were like cast off to the side and they'll do the things that no one else wants to do. Paul sees them as important. He sees them as important. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, I believe God, doesn't have any sort of gender bias. That he equips all of us. He gifts all of us. He calls all of us, men and women, to be a part of what God is doing. So I just want to let you know, here at, at Trinity, we have... Uh, women in leadership. We have women who sit on our, on our board. Our, our community of, of, of churches ordain and put women in, in lead pastor roles. We believe, and I think Paul is saying here, that women play an extremely important role in the life of the community, in the life of the church. In the life of the church. Okay, just a little, little side point there. Let's go on. Uh, verse four. This is where it gets hard once again. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, you can always tell something is important when Paul says it twice, right? And I repeat myself often because those are the things that are important. And so it's almost like Paul writes it and he's thinking, I bet they missed it. I bet they were talking. I bet they were doing other things. They were on their phone. They were not paying attention. And so I better say it again, right? He literally says, rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. Now, this is one of those uh, moments where we begin to question Paul. And we're like, all right, Paul, did you really mean that? Yeah. Paul, did you really mean that no matter what, that we should rejoice? Even when they, yeah. Even when we find out, yeah. Always rejoice. Now, doesn't this seem impossible? I mean, it seems impossible to me, honestly. At times, it seems impossible because 
there's times I don't feel like rejoicing. But there's a difference in being happy and rejoicing. Happy is based on situation and circumstances and it comes and goes, but, but joy is much deeper. Joy is not based on circumstances or situations. It's based on the knowledge of who God is and what he's done. That is what true, deep, real joy looks like. Now, if Paul's not writing this in a, in a place of comfort, like if Paul was sitting on the beach under an umbrella and he's drinking from a coconut with a little umbrella in it and, and he's telling people, hey, rejoice no matter what. We look at Paul and think, well, what does Paul know about it? But Paul writes and he says, look, I've been near death several times from being beaten and flogged. He's been abandoned. He's been on his own. He's been persecuted. And he now finds himself arrested. So Paul's writing this from a place of understanding what it means to rejoice in all circumstances. No matter what is going on in our lives, Paul says, I, I get it. I get it. I know what it li is like to go through those things. But it's hard. It's hard because I've experienced things where I didn't feel like rejoicing. Even as a young kid, as a, as a, as a young boy, my parents divorced, divorcing right about the time I, I started going to church and I would hear people talk like this and I, I think, how am I supposed to do that? Or at 14, one of my best friends, he collapses on a basketball court after school and he, and he dies as a 14-year-old boy. I mean, Paul, really? Really, Paul, in the midst of that, I'm, I'm supposed to rejoice? Or if you've experienced a miscarriage, my wife and I have experienced a miscarriage, in that? Yeah, I mean, do, Paul, do you understand? Or family members or yourself who gets a bad diagnosis or an emergency surgery or something happens? I mean, is Paul saying even in the midst of that, rejoice? Or we look at our community and what's happened in North County and Ferguson in the last couple of years and even just the, the, the frustration and the things that are happening in the Hazelwood School District with finances and, 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 and as we care about our kids and we think, Paul, rejoice? That's what we're supposed to do as we look at politics and where we're headed in our political situation. I mean, rejoice? I mean, is Paul disconnected from life so much that he would just think that we can do that? He's saying no matter what, no matter what, find joy because you've experienced Jesus. Because you've experienced the good news of the gospel. So, how do we actually do this? How do we actually rejoice in the midst of our difficult circumstances? Because you know and I know life will punch you in the stomach sometimes and it doesn't warn you. It doesn't warn you. We are seconds away. Many of us could be seconds, minutes, hours away from getting really difficult news. Right? We're moments away from our lives being turned upside down. Moments. So, so how are we actually going to do this? So I can imagine as Paul's writing this, he's thinking, right, I'm going to tell them to rejoice always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. But then I know that in their minds, they're going to think, how am I supposed to do this? And so it's, Paul then gives us some help and he says this, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Your gentleness, your reasonableness, your level-headedness, calmness, let it be evident to everyone around you during difficult things. In the chaos, in the stress, let's go to a place of gentleness. <laughs> Again, let's be honest. When chaos comes and stress comes, that's not the first place I usually turn to. That's not the first place I usually turn to. I'm not running to these emotion in the midst of, of those things. 
I can often find myself stressing out or freaking out and I think the worst and I imagine what could happen. I get frustrated. I, I turn to anger. Those are often the things that I, that I do. However, God's working on me. God is working on me and, and I've learned over time that, that I have a choice in those moments. The choice in those moments to, to cling to something different than those emotions. Because I know with a gentle spirit, in reasonableness, we, we can deal with the things that are going on in our lives better. Uh, I shared this about a year ago. Uh, my family was at a carnival, and my kids wanted to play the game, the ping pong game, uh, where you have the bowls with fish in them, and you throw the ping pong balls. Maybe you remember I told this story, and I'm like, sure, you can play that. No one ever wins at that game. And uh, my daughter throws, and she wins a goldfish. And I'm like, oh, we have a goldfish now? And she throws again, and she wins another goldfish. And I'm like, wait, isn't it only one prize per kid? And they win all the goldfish they want, and then my son wins two goldfish. So we leave this carnival with four goldfish. And they lasted about 24 hours, right? And at that point, my kids are crushed, and now they want to fish. And so, you know, we run out and we buy uh, our kids uh, a beta because we're told they live forever. And so we buy a beta, and we get the tank, and we have Benny, our little beta, and uh, he's a part of our family. And so last night, I've, I've got Cade ready for bed, and I'm like, hey, we should probably feed Benny. And so I go to the tank, and I drop a little food in for Benny, and I'm like, Benny? <laughs> uh, Where's Benny? And Cade didn't understand. He's like, but where's Benny? And it's not like another pet where you can be like, oh, they're just off hiding. You know, they just ran off for a few minutes. We'll find them eventually. I mean, it's like one square foot of space for, for Benny to go. And so I'm, I'm thinking, Benny's not hiding. I don't know what has happened to Benny, but I don't think it's, it's good. And so there's only one place Benny can go, and that's the tube that's in the fish tank. Yeah. And I notice it. And I'm thinking, how do I keep Cade from noticing the tail of Benny hanging in the tube? It's too late, and Cade sees Benny hanging down in the tube, and, and Cade just starts to weep. He just starts to weep, and he starts to cry. And I was like, Cade, it's just a fish. Why are you crying? No, I didn't, I didn't say that, all right? I didn't say it because <laughs> that would not have helped him. Right, that doesn't, in the stress, and the worry, that, that doesn't help Cade as my little boy is just crushed because his little fish is no longer alive. And so I get down and, and I get face to face with Cade and I just hold Cade. I just hug Cade. And my thought is, let's pray. Let's pray. Because if I actually believe that God is near, then I believe that God is near in the midst of all of those situations. And so in a moment, I'm trying to teach Cade, look, let's, let's, Let's find a little joy and let's celebrate that we had Benny for, for nine months. And so we sat there and I prayed for Cade and we thanked God for Benny and that he would protect Benny wherever Benny is now. I don't really know theologically what that looks like, but, but thank you for, for Benny. And it was amazing. Cade was disappointed. He was upset, but, but there was a different spirit to, to Cade. Something different happened. It was through gentleness. It was actually believing that God was near in the midst of brokenness. Right? And it helped that we went and got a new fish in that moment as well. But, but there, there was something that takes place, right? And so th this is really difficult. This is really hard. But, but this is what I know. And I believe these things to be true. I believe these things to be true. That in the midst of all those things, that the Lord is near. That the Lord is near. Uh, one of the writers in what's called the Psalms, these prayers, some of them are written as songs. Um, it says this. 
The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God is near. No matter what you're going through today, God has not walked away. He has not abandoned you. God is near. He's near to the brokenhearted. And some of you are here today and you have thought in your past when something has happened that God has abandoned you. I understand. You have thought that God is angry with you. I understand. You've been angry back to God. Some of you at some point left the church because of something and you find yourself here today and, and, and you might be thinking, I'm just gonna give church one more time. I'm gonna give it a chance one more time. The Lord is near. Those aren't empty words. Please, please don't think that. The Lord is is near to you. He is near to us. It's not easy. It's not easy. And it's unreasonable for us to expect to be happy in the midst of those situations. So there's a huge difference between happy in those situations and finding joy. And in no way am I telling you to be happy. No way. It actually, I think, um, is dishonorable to who God is to think that we should be happy in the midst of those things. I think what glorifies God the most in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of stress, in the midst of all the things that could go wrong is for us to say, I trust in you, God. I trust in you. In the midst of all this, I'm going to choose to trust in you. God, would you help me? He's he's close to you. He's near to the broken hearted. Uh, Peter, a follower of Jesus, says this, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you because he cares for you. And that leads us to Paul's next statement and we'll be uh, just about done. This is one of those coffee cup uh, statements. This is one of those uh, things that I've memorized, one of those things that I've written on the innermost part of my heart and I think of often. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Paul does it again. Paul does it again. So earlier he said, do everything without complaining. And you're like, everything? Like, that's kind of impossible. And then he tells us to rejoice always. And now he's going to say, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And it feels like worry and anxiety is unescapable. Right? I'll just go quickly. I'll just go quickly. Uh, we, we have all kinds of things that can cause us to worry. Our finances, maybe you've been laid off, maybe in the, the real estate, everything dropping. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to be worried and stressed when it comes to finances. Your kids, maybe you have a rebellious kid. Maybe you have a kid, you're, you're a grandkid you're extremely worried about. Our political scene, global warming, widespread poverty, refugee crisis, war and rumors of war. There's a lot to be anxious about. There's a lot to be worried about. What you eat, like I, I felt like I could eat, I mean, I know I'm supposed to eat kind of healthy, but I, if, I, if it's healthy, I can eat it, right? Now, now I'm learning, I don't know if you eat the Halo little cuties. Now they're coming out saying that if you buy the Halo cuties, they're watered with recycled oil water in California. I'm sure it's okay, right? I'm sure it's okay, but... I'm like, really? I'm, I thought that was good for me to eat, right? So you can look into that and get, cause you to be worried and anxious about something else. Uh, I'm helping you, right? I'm trying to help you learn how to not be worried and, and anxious. But right, there's all kinds of things. And so then we hear Paul say to not be worried about anything. 
Now, I understand that this is difficult. I understand this is difficult maybe more than anything I talk about. Because this has been my life. I've, I've been open and honest about this, that worry has played a role in my life. Since the time I was a little boy, I always worried about other people. I worried about what's going to happen to my parents. I've always worried. I've, I've been anxious. It's just been who I have, have been. Last couple of years, even as a pastor, you know, dealing with panic attacks and anxiety, I, I get it. I get it. It's difficult. In the survey that we've done, and there's been quite a few people who have done the survey, over half of the people checked worry as one of the things we should talk about. So I'm no, I know I'm not alone. And so I know as Paul writes this, that I also believe that Paul knows it's difficult because Paul doesn't leave it with just don't worry. He actually says, if, if you're not going to worry, there's something that you got to do, and that's to pray. To pray. To pray. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So as you worry about things, you turn those things into prayers. You literally, and, and maybe this is difficult, prayer is a hard thing to think about at times, but, but you turn those worries into prayers. And petitions or supplications basically mean crying out to God, a help me God. So as you worry, as you're anxious, what you do in the midst of those is you cry out to God. God, help me. God, help me. One theologian said this, worry can be delayed symptom, a delayed symptom of a practical atheism, meaning we may say we believe in God, but, but some of the times we live in a way that we don't. Okay, this is what that means. Worry can be the delayed symptom of a practical atheism that grows from persistent neglect of prayer and addictive belief in self-sufficiency. Man, when I worry, it usually comes back to, well, what am I going to do? Or how am I going to figure this out? Or how can I help? Or what, what's going to happen? Like it comes back to self-sufficiency and not a, a, a spirit of going to prayer. And, and, and this theologian says that's just kind of a practical atheism to say I believe in God, but then not go to God when things are difficult. Uh, John Wesley, who's kind of a theologian in, in our line of faith, he says anxiety and prayer cannot stand together. I mean, just try it. Just try it this week as worry comes up, as anxiety comes up, pray. Just see what begins to happen in your heart. And this is an area where we learn to do this. We learn to do this. We grow in this. We become mature in this. And then this is what Paul says, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wait, do you not want that? This unexplainable peace. Like, you know people like this. You know people like this, that when something happens to them and they're even keel and they just have this amazing faith and they have this peace like they can't explain. It's because they've done this. It's not that difficult things don't happen. It's when difficult things happen, they rejoice always. They go to God in the midst of their worries and anxieties and they pray. We can find this peace which will guard our hearts it won't let anything in that's not supposed to be there and your minds finally he ends with this philippians 4 8 and 9 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me put it into practice and the god of peace will be with you 
I just know from my own experience, when I really begin to worry and, and have anxiety, I dwell in that moment. I dwell in that moment. That's all I can think about. So Paul is saying you have to change the way of thinking. You have to change your way of thinking. So we have to come back to what is true. So when you worry, you can ask yourself, well, is the thing I'm worried about, is that true? It's not that we shouldn't be concerned, but, but whatever I'm worried about, whatever I'm anxious about, are those things true? Are they right? Is it praiseworthy? If not, then we push those things aside and then we dwell on the things that are of God's goodness, of what we've talked about today, that God is near to the brokenhearted. That he will help you in the midst of your worry and of in, in, uh, in your anxieties. So here's a, a couple of steps, uh, literally just a second here. Um, if you take notes, this is what I'd encourage you to do besides that. Is when you worry or you're anxious or you're not in agreement with someone, ask yourself the question, is this something I can control? Is this something I can control? Can I do something about this? Am I fully trusting in God in the midst of this situation? So just ask yourself, if I, am I really trusting that God is going to come through for me? And am I trusting that I can, tr in, listen, if, am I trusting that I can trust God enough that even if it doesn't end up like I want it to, that everything will be okay? That everything will be okay. And that in doing that, we will find the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that's unexplainable, that only comes from God. We'll continue to grow in these areas. You're not where you should be and neither am I. We're not where we can be. God will continually help us in these areas if we will allow him, if we will ask him to help us do that. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for uh, today. Um, this one, as I've thought about, about teaching on and have often applied it to my life, Lord, you're teaching me new things even now. Um, so God, would you help us? Would you help us to understand that our unity is important, that, that conflict, we don't have to run from conflict, and even in the midst of conflict, we can rejoice and a lot of our worry and anxiety comes from conflict around uh, the people around us and what's going on. So all of this, God, I know comes together. And so God, would you help us in the end to dwell on the things that are right, that are true, that are praiseworthy. Help us to dwell on those things. And God, I know if we're able to do that, the other things will fall into place. God, may my words today not be empty. May they not just be simple. I know these are difficult, God, so we need you to help us. We need you to help us to do these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.